And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies, in association with Catholic Answers, which can be found online at catholic.com. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature to history to art, philosophy and science, as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Hi, welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast initiative of University of St. Thomas Catholic Studies and Catholic Answers. I'm your host, Dave Devil. I'm here with my co-host, Liz Kelly, managing editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, and an award-winning writer and speaker. We're here to talk to you today a little bit about beauty, and also one of beauty's great proponents in the 20th century, Russell Kirk. Liz, how are you doing? Are you ready to talk about beauty? I love this article. Can't wait to dive in. Fantastic. Let's introduce our guest. Jared Zimmerer uh, works at the Word on Fire Institute uh, in North Texas. Jared, welcome. Wonderful to be with you. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Could you say a little bit about uh, Word on Fire and what you do and your background? Sure. Yeah. So it's funny, my my background, I would say... um, (laughs) My, my undergrad was actually in kinesiology. I thought I was going to go into uh, coaching, but uh, mm. the Lord had some other plans for me. Um, and I ended up becoming friends with Father Steve Bruno and, of course, Father Barron at the time. Um, but my, my role now is I am the senior director of the Word on Fire Institute, and um, I have been with Word on Fire for a little over four years now. Um, and so my role uh, over the past couple of years has kind of grown as the Institute uh, has grown. But uh, the Institute exists as the, the formation arm of Bishop Barron. And so we, we have um, an online platform that people get to sign up to be a part of that includes courses um, that help kind of form them in the evangelical ethos of Bishop Barron, which includes the intellectual life, spiritual life, um, you know, psychology, you name it, really anything to help people become better evangelists. Um, and so my role is as the senior director is to help manage the thing as it continues to grow. Um, and so it's been incredible to see the growth. We're now nearing almost 20,000 members around the world um, that are part of this kind of movement um, that we see to help uh, bring Christ to the culture in a, in a dynamic, um, intellectual, but uh, also very loving and charitable way. And you're also finishing up a PhD while you're doing all of this. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm finishing my doctorate at Faulkner University. Um, which is part of where this article kind of came out of. Actually, my, my dissertation right now is all I have left, um, and it's on the personalism of Russell Kirk. Um, and so from that, I just absolutely fell in love with, with Kirk as I started to read him and actually got to visit <laughs> Macosta. Um, ah, nice. So it's just been unbelievable. <laughs> That's wonderful. We had uh, Brad Berzer, who's the great uh, biographer of Russell Kirk, on last, last season talking about Kirk's Christian humanism. But could you give us just a brief rundown of who Kirk is for new listeners? Sure. So Kirk was, of course, a great intellect of American, uh, recent American history. Um, I think a lot of people consider him as the father of American conservatism. Um, And I think, too, that unfortunately, in regard to the kind of modern conservative movement, um, unfortunately, not people know Kirk as well as they should. Um, Mm -hmm. I I legitimately think that he is the great mind of the conservative movement in the United States. Um, And it's much more than just kind of um, ideology. Of course, he's you know, anti-ideology by all means, and much of the conservative movement today has become that. 
Um, and so he, I think in many ways, um, is the thinker that we need to return to, uh, to kind of think through how we get out of a lot of the chaos that we're, we're in right now. Um, I actually came to know Kirk. Um, I, I grew up in a decently conservative home, um, but I didn't know Kirk actually until about five years ago uh, when I was sent an article uh, online. And then through Faulkner, I had an opportunity to go do a seminar for about five days uh, in Macosta at Piety Hill at his, at his home. I got to meet the, the wonderful Annette, uh, his, his widow, um, and just absolutely fell in love with uh, everything that he kind of presents on mm. what it means to, to be alive. Mm. Really, I think is a big part of what Kirk was about. That's a great way to express it. I I picture him walking around in his cape. You know, that's a, that's a man fully alive. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You you know you describe him as a conservative, and of course he was. But I mean, what's interesting about him is that uh, you know if his politics were conservative, they were not necessarily ideological, and he didn't conceive that's of correct. of his vision of the world as ideological. Indeed, his own life. He often called himself a bohemian Tory. I mean, Liz mentions the cape and that sort of thing. In your article, which is uh, here in Logos, Beauty, Order, and the Moral Imagination, The Aesthetics of Russell Kirk, you describe Kirk and his understanding of what the beautiful is in terms of a kind of postmodernism. Many people would say, what's conservative about postmodernism? What do you mean by that? Yeah, and part of that credit would need to go to, of course, Gerald Rossello, um, who wrote actually a book called The Postmodern Imagination of Russell Kirk. Um, but in many ways, there's kind of the one understanding of postmodernism based off of the work of Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, many of the other um, sort of critical theory uh, people who are mostly concerned with kind of an anti-foundationalism or, or a deconstruction of different theories and different ideas that we think of as true. Um, and Kirk actually had sort of no, um, uh, no, no uh, patience for a lot of that. You know, he, he really had a big concern with anybody who started to treat society, started to treat truth as just mere abstractions. Mm -hmm. um, he actually called it the endless play of word games. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it was just kind of this constant back and forth. And so for Kirk, uh, and I would tie in maybe T.S. Eliot in this regard, um, is the idea of postmodernism in the sense that we, are, we need to move beyond the rationalism of the Enlightenment. Um, we need to move beyond the determinism of the past several centuries um, and get back to what it means to be fully human, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so he talks about a prescriptive um, politics or a prescriptive society. Uh, and in many ways, the prescription um, is the fullness of the human experience, right? Um, that, which includes mystery. Right. That's one thing that we lost in this kind of enlightenment mind is um, we want everything to boil down to the scientific um, uh, theories of, of truth. But um, really, the fullness of humanity is much more than that. It's kind of bringing back the heart, uh, if you will. Um, so in many ways, it's, it's trying to move beyond what we consider modernism, but not in a way that continues to deconstruct or to start, start even treat people as abstractions. Mm -hmm. um, he was really concerned with the, the human being uh, as a human person. Yeah, it wasn't just a matter of being fully human, but a thriving human. <laughs> I think exactly. that word comes up a fair amount. Yeah, and that's, that thriving actually comes from, in, in his understanding, an appreciation of beauty in the old sense, getting beyond the modernism that says, well, this is just, you know, the beautiful is simply that which sort of makes you tingle. But no, beauty is, is something that leads you into the greater truth and goodness that is present in the universe and ultimately in God. 
Um, he, he uses that phrase that he took from Edmund Burke, the moral imagination. Can you, can you say a little bit about that term? Sure. So yeah, as you mentioned, he borrows it from, from Burke. Uh, and in many ways, it is a way to experience the true good and beautiful through the imagination. And the way beauty operates within that is that it helps to form us in desiring what we ought to desire, desiring the good, desiring the true. Um, and the imagination in many ways, which again, to make him kind of a postmodern, um, is a way in which we can discover those things. It doesn't have to be under a microscope. Um, so that's why he was such a champion of, the, of literature, of beauty, of architecture, because he knew that the imaginative route of truth, uh, the imaginative route of understanding our moral necessities uh, is an authentic way to understand um, the, the transcendent world. Um, it's a way in which, you know, he was such a big um, proponent of sort of frenetic way of where theory meets practice. And in many ways, the moral imagination is that in-between where we can kind of take the theory or philosophy of something like natural law, but then the moral imagination allows us to participate in the real world uh, frenetically in a wise way. Um, so it's to bring in, again, kind of the, the fullness of, of the mind and the body and the soul uh, and what it means to be, be a human person. Yeah, it's not just an illustration. I mean, it actually gives us something beyond what we can uh, formulate in words or phrases or formulas, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way in which, um, of course, it, you know, I think some of his articles or his uh, essays on the, the route of access that the moral imagination gives us, even to the mind and to the heart, uh, is such an interesting thing as both teachers and evangelists today, because mm -hmm. um, we, we, we need to be champions of the imagination. That's, that's the Christian thing. It's, <laughs> we, mm -hmm. we operate on a man that gave us parables, right? We, mm -hmm. we, want to, we want to bring in the imaginative intellect uh, into all of our dealings. Kirk was himself not just a commentator, cultural commentator and political commentator, but he was a writer of short stories and novels, many of them in the kind of realm of fantasy, gothic fiction, things like some people would say, well, that's going in the wrong direction. I mean, we want, you know, we in order to form a real moral imagination, we need realism. Why why did Kirk think that fantasy and ghost stories and and these forms were very effective in helping us? Yeah, I think that that gets um, partially probably because of his love of Tolkien <laughs> and a little <laughs> bit of an appreciation of the way he did it. Yeah. Um, but he also had a little bit of, uh, again, lack of, lack of patience with um, this kind of uh, reduction of the human experience to a certain aspect. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the imagination, um, of course, fantasy is a way to kind of awaken our minds to something beyond ourselves without necessarily... Um, or, or that, that allows for us to get beyond this kind of disagreement between one another. So, for example, um, one thing that he really didn't like was this kind of sharp bifurcation between high culture and low culture. Mm -hmm. um, he actually really felt that, that the folkish is, is, is a way to express truths that uh, we really need to hold on to. So his love of, of fantasy, his love of gothic, a lot of that came from his love of myth. A lot of it came from, you know, just the, the history of, of story. That in many ways was not realism. Um, it was it was participating in this kind of this other world. But the reason being is because um, he actually has this excellent essay um, that talks about how, of course, he was particularly interested in the scary <laughs> or horror. Yeah. Um, and and the reason being is because we all have as human persons a reaction to the supernatural, and a, what the supernatural can do is awaken us to something higher than ourselves, more than ourselves. 
again, to kind of put them in that postmodern camp, that's beyond rationalism. You, you can't explain a ghost yeah. by pure mm -hmm. rationalism. There's just no way. Mm -hmm. um, and in many ways, it actually reminds me of Hans Urs von Balthasar talking about um, beauty has this arresting quality mm -hmm. that whenever you're both looking at something beautiful, this kind of back and forth about what's true, what's actual, it, it starts to kind of fall away and you find yourself in a place of agreement. Um, and particularly with Kirk, when it comes to ghost stories, when it comes to fantasy, it's this place that in a similar way, it's kind of an arresting quality of like, we all have a fear of ghosts. We, we all have a fear of this kind of thing beyond us that we can't explain. And in, in a certain way, it awakens in us something that um, desires the truth that that reveals. Um, and so I, I would say that in many ways, he is able to use ghosts to kind of capture uh, that, that moral imagination. I, I find what you're saying about his um, ghost stories to be particularly true. I've just observed it in my own husband and his interaction with these pieces that he writes about it in such a way that they're very, very thoughtful. Um, yeah. I think, you know, beauty has a vocation, maybe, all the transcendentals do. And I love this line of yours, you know, beauty invades the soul and trains it to better desire that which it ought. Uh, I love that line. I'm going to use it in something I write at some point. I'm just telling you right now. I'll credit you, of course. <laughs> but, oh, thank you. Um, but uh, there's so much weight in that because of the word ought. How would Kirk respond to that notion of there is an ought to be desired? And that's such an interesting question, especially in the kind of our, our modern relativistic uh, age, um, I think in large part, the, the ought, that kind of place in us that starts to desire something beyond ourselves, that ought points to an order of things. Mm -hmm. And of course, Russell Kirk was such a champion of, of order, um, both in the soul and in the commonwealth. Mm -hmm. But order implies that there's a certain way of doing things. And I think part of what we've lost in our kind of modern language is that the ought is not something that is um, dutiful in regard to like a ball and chain. The ought is actually what makes you more free. Mm. Um, and so for him, the ought is not something to be just, you know, kind of discouraged of in regard to even our own way in which we personally start to look at the ought, but rather it's. I desire that because I desire ever more freedom in who I am as a human person mm. and what human nature is. You're participating in human nature uh, itself. Um, and in fact, most of what he talks about, there's a, a quote actually I use in my, my article, um, that in many ways, the, the ought, it helps us to understand greatness, justice, order. Um, and he actually says that the ought points us beyond the bars of appetite and self-interest. Beautiful. Right? So it, it gets us beyond kind of this culture of self-invention and actually points us to an adventure. Um, and in order to be in that adventure, you have to participate in the order of that adventure. Mm. Um, and so it, it beauty in such a unique way, if you think about the three transcendentals, beauty in such a unique way is able to kind of get beyond even what our own minds might try to fight. Because if you hear something beautiful, or if you see something beautiful, even experience something beautiful, just like a beautiful person, just a, a saintly individual, 
you kind of go, I want what they have. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know what it is, but I, I hear a beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is they have, I, I want it. I ought to want it, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And in many ways, he's kind of, um, Roger Scruton said something very similar, you know, that, that beauty and um, beautiful music, it, it uh, creates in us this desire to want what that has. Um, so it's this ought that, that's out there that um, it's, we all participated in our own way, but it is an ordered ought, if that mm. makes sense. <laughs> As the founding program of the Catholic Studies movement in higher education, St. Thomas Catholic Studies is internationally recognized for its integrated, Christ-centered approach to exploring 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture. We provide a range of undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as professional development opportunities, all to help you integrate faith into your academic and professional pursuits. Catholic intellectual exploration or career preparation? Choose both. Visit stthomas.edu backslash Catholic Studies to learn about our online, on-ground, and hybrid educational options so you can learn and grow wherever you need to be. Just out of curiosity, you know, Scruton, who was the great English philosopher who died uh, just about a year, year and a half ago, uh, did he know Kirk personally? Kirk died in 94, I believe. Do you know if they had any personal connection? Actually, I had quite a bit. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a fantastic picture of a young Scruton mm-hmm. uh, in Macosta meeting Russell Kirk. Oh, oh, wow. I believe this was in the, in the early 80s. Yeah. Um, and there are several letters going back and forth. Um, and there's a great interview on YouTube of Scruton talking about Russell Kirk as one of his great friends. That's fantastic. Um, and so the, the two of them knew each, knew each other very well. And of course, they agreed on probably 99% of, of mm-hmm. <laughs> their own way of thinking. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm a big fan of both of them, but let, let's play the skeptic for a minute. I mean, uh, Kirk was also a big fan of St. John Henry Newman, and mm-hmm. Newman clearly believed that uh, touching the imagination uh, was a big part of religious conversion and conversion to reality. Uh, but he also had skepticism about it in his idea of a university. In one of the discourses, he talks about the danger of a morality that ends up being a kind of aesthetic thing. Uh, uh, you know, it did. Was Kirk alive to that worry as well? And if so, how did how did he address that? How did he say that we, you know, the moral imagination is developed through beauty, but there has to be something more? Yeah, you know, and I love that you brought up uh, Newman. Um, I actually have an essay coming out in a, a different journal that is about his convert Kirk's conversion to Catholicism. I think in large part was because of John Henry Newman. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and so with Newman, I think I would point to his understanding of the real and notional um, aspects of ascent, um, where in the real it's experiential. It's kind of like an experience of beauty, whereas the notional is much more about the idea. So maybe a syllogism or a yeah. philosophical argument. And both of them would say you need both. Right. right. And so the, the beauty in a certain sense can awaken the real and in a way that it can't awaken the notional, but it has to balance itself out with the notional. And so there's actually um, an essay by uh, Russell Kirk on um, the, the limitations of poetry, which in many ways he borrows from Edmund Burke and T.S. Eliot, uh, where they say that poetry is able to provide um, an awakening of certain human realities, um, particularly in regard to the moral imagination, but it cannot replace philosophy and theology. Yeah. Um, so you, you need both. Um, so a, yeah. to, to a skeptic, I might say, yeah, you're right. Morality kind of redu- reduced to just pure aesthetics 
it will never work. You, mm-hmm. you have to balance that out and make sure it's pointing towards the order that theology and philosophy provide. He, I mean, he balanced that in his own life. I mean, he did, he, as we said, he, he did write a lot of fiction and uh, a lot of creative work, but he also did a lot of analysis in order to, to keep that balance together. I mean, that's, that sounds like it's right up, up the trail of your, of your doctoral dissertation on the personalism aspect. So, Yeah, that's right. It's, it's taking in personalism as a style of philosophy. Yeah. It takes in both the, uh, the experience of the subjective like of the individual conscience, but at the same time, it, it has to balance itself out with objective um, moral value, right? And so it's this kind of both and, where mm-hmm. a lot of times you find ideologies on one or the other. It's this either or thing. Um, and I think Kirk would definitely cheer on the, the both and. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, this brings us to a, to a part of your essay that, uh, and a part of Kirk's thinking that I think is important. I mean, he was an opponent of ideology, of that, of sort of idea structures that are impervious to, to, to reality and anything challenging them. And one of the things that he thought that developed the person, particularly in this aesthetic sphere, was keeping alive all of those old, you, you mentioned the folkish, uh, you know, folk tales and myths. Um, speak a little bit about, uh, about Kirk's importance in this time in which many people are trying to get rid of all the old stories because they're racist or sexist or homophobic or, or what have you. Why, why would Kirk think that to, to really develop a moral imagination, you have to have a little bit of a, a, a cultural memory. Yeah, you know, and, and this points to the concern that he had, especially in regard to the human person, that among ideologies, the human person becomes an abstraction. And so they're, they're part of this group rather than the individual. And so even the idea of, you know, individual conscience starts to kind of fall away to the ideology. And he had a major concern about that because we see what happens to when that happens uh, with, with the wars that have happened in the past 150 years. Um, but also, you know, in regards to tradition and history as sort of great educators uh, for us today, um, I think in many ways he would say that, you know, there's this problematic way of looking at history as this stale old thing, but actually it's vibrant and living. I mean, to use T.S. Eliot's understanding and Christopher Dawson, that the past is in the present. Yes. It's participating in where, where we're at now. Correct. So we're not participating in a present only. And, when, and it's certainly dangerous to look at the utopian future and start to participate in that way. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. we, we have to realize that um, sort of like the Chi K. Chesterton thing of the democracy of the dead, like the, the, the voices of the dead are still very much alive today. And we do ourselves a great disservice, and actually, I think a dangerous disservice, if we start to completely ignore them. Um, but part of that also is that with Kirk, um, he totally understood in the kind of Burkean sense that progress requires change. Like we 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 consistently have to always look at our systems, always look at what's going on uh, in the culture, and to continue to be okay with certain changes, but not in a revolutionary sense not in a kind of anti-foundationalist sense. Mm-hmm. Rather, it's, it's let's lean in on the wisdom of the human experience and history or human wisdom and tradition and allow that to educate us to, to move forward beyond our problems and, and what that might look like prudentially. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you, if you don't know where you've been, <laughs> you're just going to keep going down the same roads, no matter whether you think exactly. you're having a yeah. revolution or not. Right. I mean, that's, that's what I think is, is, is so wonderful about Kirk is that he's not an uncritical observer of either the present or the past, but he right. understands the need to keep that together. Who, do, who did he look to 
do you think, uh, you know, you mentioned Newman was one of the ones that he, he looked to, and I think for that understanding of change. Who are the other great thinkers? We've mentioned Burke, but who else did he look to, especially uh, for his understanding of aesthetics and of the sense of the time-honored past? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting question because uh, it, it, he was so prolific or pro- proficient in so many different areas of, <laughs> I mean, literature and philosophy and theology. And so for each one, he probably had his own heroes. But I think in many ways, Newman and Burke, Edmund yeah. Burke would be the, the by far the top two. Uh, there and then Marcus Aurelius likely yeah. would be another one as far as practical living, uh, but of course John Randolph of Roanoke he continued to have a great appreciation of him even after he finished his master's thesis um, on on him, um, and then of course he did appreciate uh, the Southern agrarians although he also had a little bit of a struggle with their understanding of race in some of the writings, um, but he was so well read yeah. um, that mm-hmm. that to point to people specifically it's it's a little bit more difficult because he also held. Ray Bradbury and T.S. Eliot as two of his great heroes in, in regard to poetry and, and literature. And so, yeah. um, but I, I would say, I guess if I was to point to three, it would be Newman, Burke, uh, and Marcus Aurelius, um, which Marcus Aurelius's meditations were actually on his uh, bedside at, at his deathbed. So mm. um, some, someone he held on to his whole life. Mm. Yeah. And Brad, and Brad Purser's biography talks about how Kirk would, would often, after he'd get the kids put to bed, he would he'd basically stay up all night reading and writing quite often. And, I, you know, that's the, that's the thing, especially for somebody who's out in a country, country home up there in, uh, you know, rural Michigan, he had the time and the energy to, to immerse himself in mm-hmm. uh, some of these sources in a way that we probably, we probably are not chained as we are to our computers and, and smartphones. Yeah, he certain, certainly had a, a big limitation of distractions. Uh, but he's also, from what I can tell, one of the hardest workers I've ever <laughs> come yeah, across because right. <laughs> yeah. he was constantly writing or reading, I mean, all the time. We've been talking about literature and poetry, but he had a real interest. Many of those ghost stories, you know, mm-hmm. focus in on, on uh, you know, the, the decaying architecture of St. Louis in the 50s and, you know, places in, in Michigan where they're coming down. Uh, say a little bit about, about public art and its place in developing a moral imagination. Yeah. So he had a, there's a great um, essay called The Architecture of Servitude and Boredom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he's talking about servitude and boredom, he's actually talking about existential boredom, not just boredom of, I don't know what to do right now, but a deep sort of um, longing for purpose and meaning. And because we don't have that, we're bored. We're just bored with life. You know, kind of the T.S. Eliot blasted ground thing. Like we're just kind of seeking out little places, little chips of places that we can find meaning. Uh, and then the servitude was actually a servitude to our own uh, selfish desires. Um, and so what happens whenever architecture around you starts to break down, uh, so does your sense of being a human person. Um, and so in regard to public architecture, it's, it's funny because um, most of his ghost stories, a lot of the bad guys were these people that are called social planners. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and in many ways, they would create their communities for a purely economic outcome. Um, and of course, he had no patience whatsoever mm-hmm. <laughs> for that because the human thing is, is much more than the economic thing or the political thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we have to do is surround ourselves with beauty. If we truly want a beautiful community, we've got to have beautiful architecture around them. Um, and in his studies, especially of Detroit, he saw as the architecture became much more economic, then you had the breakdown of the family. You had mm-hmm. the breakdown of, of crime rates going up and all kinds of stuff. 
He actually has like a four-point plan for urban restoration that you mention in our article. And one of the ones that I thought was the most telling and the first, I think, I can remember walking around Assisi with my husband, the architect, mm. and him saying uh, one of the things that makes it so beautiful, you know, you just feel the peace fall on you when you step off the platform on the, on the train there, is he said the architecture is humane. It's humane in mm. scale. It's humane in uh, its presentation. And that was something that um, Kirk was keen to recapture is uh, uh, humanity in, <laughs> in the architecture. Can you talk a little bit more about some of his other points around urban restoration? Yeah, so, and I, I love that first one, uh, especially because as my, I'm writing my dissertation on the, the personalism, mm. even in regard to architecture itself, the person can't be lost. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the, the second one is the, the community called a city must nurture roots, right? Not hack through them. So mm. uh, in many ways, our, our, our cities ought to reflect our history. So talking about, you know, unfortunately, this kind of desire to negate our history and tear down everything of history. Um, I, there's a way in which you can appreciate history without necessarily, um, you know, ignoring some of the problems of it as well. I think actually it, it helps teach us not to repeat those problems mm -hmm. whenever they're around mm -hmm. us. Uh, but then also, if you think about, I, I immediately think of G.K. Chesterton talking about how eventually all cities will basically have the same restaurants. <laughs> around the oh, and in, terrible. And <laughs> in, oh. in our you know, modern United States, that's everywhere, right. everywhere we go. It, right. It's the same restaurants, unless you happen to know where to look online to try to find, you know, a, a smaller mom and pa shop of some kind. Uh, but in, in many ways, like, for example, in the North Texas area, where we have a lot of German and Irish and Czechoslovakian history, most of that's gone. Mm. Um, unless you unless you find specific towns that are still holding it up in some way. But that, that feeling of this is where you come from, this is where the city is coming from, where the roots are, in many ways it's being ripped out uh, because we just haven't um, held on to those. Um, but also another one, um, he, he says that you know, urban planning should not be purely on a commercial gain, so not just an economic uh, gain primarily, but for the common good. Um, and there's a lot of talk right now about common good stuff, but in large mm -hmm. part, it's what is virtuous. Right. It's, it's how do we the common good is to keep everyone in the desire and the life of virtue. Um, and so if, the, if your architecture reflects ugliness, typically your behavior is going to start to reflect ugliness, too. Mm -hmm. so, you know, that's a, that's a great point. We're nearing our end. But let me ask you, uh, Jared, what what for people who are just being introduced to Kirk, you said you were only introduced five years ago. What would you recommend are the few things that you would uh, use to get people interested in, in Kirk, uh, what, what should they read first? Yeah, I guess there would be probably three things I would recommend. Um, first one would be online, so it'd be easy to, to get the, the 10 principles of a conservative. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think in many ways, people have a misunderstanding of what we mean by conservative today. And those, those 10 principles really lay it out very well. You could, of course, find those at the Kirk Center website. Um, the other one is the prospects for conservatives um, that, that Kirk wrote. Um, and it's funny because people thought that he was going to create this kind of perfect plan of, you know, how to create a city and all this stuff. But it's, but it's much more um, a way of thinking about the world, an attitude towards the world. And every single one of the questions he asks in, his, um, in that book come down to the human person. So in regard to truth, in regard to goodness, what is good? What is true? And, and how does the human person relate those things? 
Uh, and then the third one, if you want to get a little bit deeper, um, is actually a collection of his essays called The Essential Russell Kirk. That's put together by Port George uh, Panishas, I think is how you say his last name. Yeah. Um, that's, that's excellent. And it does a really good job of kind of understanding him chron chronologically, some of his early stuff compared to maybe later in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, you do see a little bit of a change uh, in his thought as he as he ages, but um, I, I would recommend those three things. I think to start. Yeah, these he is a conservative who's not an ideological conservative, uh, or in many ways a sort of a partisan conservative. It's it's conservatism in the best sense uh, that keeps hold of everything and is also liberal. It's freeing too. Well, Jared, what what are you working on now? You said you're you're working on the dissertation, but you've got an article on Newman coming. Any anything else in the pipeline? Yeah. So as far as uh, Kirk, yeah, as, yeah, as you said, I've got the, the dissertation and a couple other essays uh, as well. I'm also working on a couple of, um, of course, with, with the Word on Fire Institute, there's always plenty to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's uh, constantly moving forward. But the last of the things that we've got coming up, filming, new courses, new events, um, especially now that COVID restrictions are lifting, we're really looking forward to starting to get back into in-person uh, events with, with people. And so we've got some conference planning we're doing uh, right now. But uh, Lots of everything. Plus, I'm, I'm married and have six kids. So there you, uh, go. you want to go home, I got plenty to do. <laughs> That's right. God bless your many initiatives there, sir. Indeed. Thank you very much for being with us, Jared. Absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. All right. And thanks, Liz, as always. My pleasure. Well, this has been another, and I, I say this, but it really is another fantastic episode of Deep Down Things. We've been with Jared Zimmer of the Word on Fire Institute talking about Russell Kirk and beauty. I'm Dave Devil, Assistant Professor of Catholic Studies, and I thank you for being with us, listeners. We hope that you will visit our Patreon site, patreon.com backslash deepdownthings. That's all one word. Uh, this is an initiative of the University of St. Thomas Catholic Studies and Catholic Answers. We thank you for everything that you've done for us, listeners, and we hope that you'll stick with us. God bless. Deep Down Things is part of the Catholic Answers family of podcasts. For lots more great Catholic radio and podcast programming, please download the Catholic Answers Live app.